What is up, pardon my pancreas? Matt here today coming at you with a new guest who is extremely knowledgeable in the world of diabetes. As you know, we bring you the best of the best. And today we're talking about how to test your basal insulin. Of course, basal insulin is your background insulin, keeping you stable throughout the day and night. Today we're going to go over how you can fine-tune that. Now, of course, everything on this podcast is not medical advice. You should consult your doctors first. With that being said, let's jump into today's episode. I've spent the last 10 years pushing the limits while identifying trends and patterns in my type 1 diabetes management. Follow along as I learn, apply, and share the fitness, nutrition, and lifestyle strategies that I've learned from diabetes experts around the world. The real question is, how can we live fearlessly with diabetes while maintaining stable blood sugars? This podcast is here to give you the answer. My name is Matt Vandervecht, and with my co-host Ali Abdul-Kareem, we welcome you to Pardon My Pancreas. What is up, Pardon My Pancreas? Today we've got another fun and exciting expert guest we're bringing on today. He is an award-winning certified diabetes educator, master's level exercise physiologist, and he's living with type 1 diabetes, so he knows what's going on. And on top of all of that, he's authored six books, including Think Like a Pancreas, which now I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. I want to bring on Gary Shiner. So thank you so much, Gary, for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Now, I actually met you briefly at a TCOID conference. How long have you been doing the TCOID conferences? That was the first one that I've been to. Was it really? Uh, that was, yeah, that was the one conference for adults with type one diabetes. Yeah. I, I've been to a few of the, you know, the general TCOID meetings, which are for patients with type one or type two. Th- this was my first one conference. Oh, okay. What a blast! What a fun meeting that was, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a whole new environment for people living with type one diabetes. Yeah, there's just a, a sense of of belonging that everybody has there, Absolutely. and we're all we're all able to make fun of things that we have to deal with day in and day out, and, and everybody right. gets it. You don't have to explain things to everyone; everyone gets it. So true, and honestly, my favorite part is you're sitting in the conference rooms, hearing dozens of other CGMs and pumps beeping. And you know exactly what those beeps mean. <laughs> yeah, I like to play name that beep and try to recognize exactly what device it is and what the message is. I deal with so many devices in my practice, and I've used so many, so I, I try to identify them if I can. That's right. And you are uh, you work with Integrated Diabetes Services. And when I I wasn't one hundred percent clear on, are you the founder of Integrated Diabetes? Yeah, I started the practice about 23 years ago. I think it was 95, 96. Uh, yeah, I started that after I worked at a Joslin clinic for several years and just saw this this need in the marketplace for uh, people to be able to access you know, a, a diabetes educator who really understands type 1 and can help patients fine-tune their insulin and, and learn some more advanced types of self-management skills. So it's, it's expanded now. We, we're working with patients all over the U.S. and overseas and doing a lot of work by phone and internet with, with clients now. Oh, wow. And has that evolved over time or was it always that mission of helping people around the world? <laughs> well, back in the 90s, you know, internet kind of went, wee, wee. <laughs> we didn't have the, the tools for doing it then. So this True. this is you know, maybe the last 10 years or so we've We've really dived headfirst into the the web 
uh, access. And also, you know, having all these programs where, where patients can download their, their devices to makes it easier for us to, to be able to assist them. So we do a lot of number crunching and data analysis on their part. And what kind of analysis are you guys known for? What do you uh, do the most, would you say? Uh, quite a bit with pump and CGM. Uh, you know, pumps up until seven, eight years ago, it was almost exclusive. Now a lot mm-hmm. with CGM combined with pumps, uh, helping patients get their doses fine-tuned. And like I said, also taking the time to teach them advanced self-management skills that they just can't really get anywhere else. And are these patients who are your existing patients or are they seeing other doctors and they come to you because their doctors aren't giving them enough attention? Well, they all see a physician of some kind because they have to get their prescriptions and lab work. So they're working with us on the diabetes management end of it. So we're kind of the micromanagement arm of, of what their, you know, what their physician can't provide. Their physician doesn't have the time and usually not the expertise to really work with them on, on the minute details of managing diabetes day in and day out. Yeah, because there's a lot that goes into it. <laughs> yeah, you know it. Yeah. Uh, so within that, I know you mentioned uh, basils. Do you guys test basal insulin or do you help them identify where they need to make those shifts? Yeah, the basal insulin is is kind of the, the foundation of the whole program. If, if somebody's basal insulin doses are not set up properly, they're, they're really going to struggle. It doesn't matter how how hard they work or how much they know. If those basal settings are incorrect, uh, their glucose is going to be dragged up and down all the time. It's never going to hold steady. It just makes it really hard to accomplish anything. I, I compare it to trying to build a house on a crooked foundation. Mm. You might have a great architect, but building on a crooked foundation is never a good <laughs> idea. Right. And within the basal realm, uh, what is a good sign that something's off? The best sign is, well, first off, if you're on an insulin pump and you've never actually gone through basal testing, I can guarantee you your settings are not right. Mm. If you're on one flat basal rate all day and night, uh, or if you just notice your glucose rising or falling when there's no bolus insulin working and no carbs digesting, that's usually also a sign that the basal's off. The the basal insulin also applies to people on injections. Somebody who's taking once or twice daily injections of long-acting insulin also has to have their dose fine-tuned and set properly. It's a little different. When somebody's on injections, we try to get the dose set so that they're steady through the night. So from bedtime until morning, we want a dose that keeps them relatively flat. Mm -hmm. On a pump, we have the ability to fine-tune the basal insulin at all phases of the day. And what works during the night is rarely what's going to work during the day. <laughs> so we have to go through you know, the basal testing at different phases of the day for pump users. Right. And you mentioned with pumps, if they have that one setting all day, all night, something's wrong. How many mm-hmm. pump settings would you say are either recommended or are average that you've noticed? I'd say the average is three to five, but what's recommended it depends on the individual there are those rare cases where people need a relatively flat basal pattern mm-hmm. some uh, i'd say most people require a significant peak in their basal at, at some time of day and a valley at other times of day mm-hmm. another thing that's rare is for pump users to have multiple peaks and valleys in their basal program 
Uh-huh. So I, I tell people if if they look at their 24-hour pattern and it looks like a city skyline, it, it's not right. <laughs> it should look like a nice smooth mountain range right? with a nice ebb and flow to it. And I think in many cases when they do have those cityscape, you know, where it's lots of peaks and valleys, it's them unknowingly correcting for their meals where it's yeah, existing. Yeah. yeah, they're compensating for something else that's not working right. Yeah. It might be that they're exercising at a certain time of day right. and not making appropriate adjustments. So they set their basal ridiculously low. Mm-hmm. And then if they don't exercise at that time, of course, their <laughs> blood sugar shoots up really high. So yeah, they're usually, if, if there's multiple peaks and valleys, they're usually compensating for something else that's not being done correctly. Absolutely. And then within that realm, how do you test for basal? Once you've established that something's wrong, what is that next step? What we want to try to do is isolate the basal insulin against the thing that basal insulin is supposed to match, which is the liver's production of glucose. That's really basal insulin's only job. As the liver puts sugar into the bloodstream throughout the day and night, the basal insulin should be there to match it. And that's what keeps the blood sugar fairly constant. So we want to eliminate all the other variables that might raise or lower the glucose. So during a basal test, we don't want bolus insulin working. We don't want food digesting. We don't want heavy exercise taking place, no unusual stress. And for those who are using a hybrid closed loop system, we need to turn off the automated basal adjustment features because that's obviously going to interfere. Mm-hmm. And there's a few other subtle little things like w- with women, we try not to basal test right around their menstrual cycle. So we wait a right. few days before or after. Uh, we don't like to basal test after somebody's had a low blood sugar because they may be experiencing a rebound and hormones are kicking in that drive their sugars up. So there's, there's some nuances but the basic tenet is we don't want ins- we don't want bolus insulin, food, or exercise occurring in the midst of a basal test. Yeah, and from what I've heard um, in the in the past is that when you are basal testing, if you do dip low or if you start going high, you cancel the test because there's no reason to continue. It's obviously wrong. You correct the low or you give some insulin for the high, and then you try again the next day. Is that something? You That's recommend? right. Yeah, at the low end, it's more of a concern. Uh, sometimes we'll have people stop a basal test if they dip below 80, because they may start to experience a little bit of a rebound even in the 70s Interesting. or you know, like four millimole for those who are outside of the US. Uh, at the high end, we're a lot more liberal. In some cases, I'll let people go as high as 250 before we'll stop the test and bolus. Other cases, we might only go up as high as, say, 200, but it's okay to run a little bit high during a basal test. All we're interested in is whether the glucose goes up, down, or holds steady. So being a little above target is not a problem. Right. And uh, how long do you run the basal test for? Is it skipping one meal or is it a 24-hour fast? It's, we try to do it with one missed meal at a time. So for example, a morning test, you wouldn't eat breakfast. You would just go to lunchtime without eating or bolusing. And then we would do an afternoon test where you eat breakfast and skip lunch Mm -hmm. and an evening test where you eat lunch and then have a late dinner. Then the overnight test would involve just skipping the beds, any bedtime snacks. Right. 
And you know, the schedule can vary from person to person. You know, some people just don't really mind going for a while without eating. And we might do it in, in three segments instead of four. Hmm. Some people get very ornery when they haven't eaten for a while. <laughs> and we'll, we might do it in shorter time intervals. We might uh, do it in five uh, segments. Young children, for example, we, we usually do it in five or even six different segments to keep it relatively short. Oh, wow. Uh, we can usually start a basal test about four hours after the last meal and bolus. Four hours later, we usually figure that the carbs have finished digesting, the bolus has cleared. So we're just looking at basal insulin and the liver's glucose output is the only things affecting blood sugar at that point. Mm-hmm. And within the, uh, once you have completed the breakfast, lunch, dinner, nighttime, do you ever bring all of that together for a final 24 hour fast? Or is that not recommended? It's not usually recommended. It's not usually needed either. Mm. It's pretty rare that somebody would do a a prolonged fast like that. Although it's probably not the right time of year to say that because most of the Jews I know are going to be fasting next Tuesday Ah. for Yom Kippur. I'm going to, I do this every year also. (laughs) It's a good way to validate that my basal rates are set properly. Right. Um, but most people don't go through 24 hour fast. They might skip or delay a meal. So we get a more representative uh, example of real life, just missing the one meal. Right. Um, and I know that there's, you know, the intermittent fasting crowds, right? They want to fast for 16 mm-hmm. hours and eat for eight. Um, so that means they are kind of basal testing on an almost a daily basis, but how often would you recommend going back and revisiting the basal test? It's usually only necessary to repeat or or recalibrate the basal rates. If somebody's gained or lost a lot of weight, if they've had major changes in their their lifestyle, or if they've gone through significant hormonal changes, such as we see during menopause. Um, Otherwise, the basal rates will hold true for an extended period of time. That doesn't mean throughout a person's entire life, they're not going to change. You know, during you know, adolescence, for example, basal rates go up very quickly. Uh, during advanced age, they tend to drop off a little bit, mm. but in between all of that, they tend to hold fairly, fairly constant. Okay. And for someone on a split basal dose, I'm sorry, on a MDI, have you heard of the split basal where it's sometimes you take it some in the morning, some at night? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, th- there are people who do that, particularly with Levomir, because it has a slightly shorter duration of action. It mm. may not always last a full 24 hours, and it has a little bit of a peaking effect uh, midway through its action curve. My experience is that trying to use injected basal insulin in that way rarely works because the two doses that you take morning and night superimpose on top of each other. Right. So if you take 10 in the morning, 20 at night, or 20 in the morning, 10 at night, it really is not going to matter because you're getting 30 units of background insulin all together. So you're going to have a relatively flat amount of insulin in the bloodstream anyway. Is that true even with that minimal peak that Levomir has? Yeah, it, it's the same situation. Mm. It doesn't mean that the timing of Levomir doesn't matter. So if somebody's glucose seems to be rising, let's say in the early morning, taking the Levomir in the evening is preferred mm-hmm. to taking it in the morning because they may get a little bit extra action of extra action from the Levomir taking it at that time of day. Right. 
And then if I'm correct, uh, I believe Lantis has a little bit, not necessarily a peak, but kind of a, a rolling mountain type thing where a little bit more is delivered up front and a little bit less on the tail end. Yeah, there is sometimes a little bit of a drop-off around the time the injection is given. With Glargine or Basaglar, these are all the same insulin, mm-hmm. but they they sometimes will taper off towards the end of the 24 hours. And then there's a ramp-up period when the new injection is given. So let's say somebody takes their dose at 8 p.m. They might see a little bit less activity of their insulin between 6 and 10 hmm than they do the rest of the day because of the the tapering and then the ramp up period. Not everybody sees that, but occasionally that does happen. That is interesting. Uh, Cause I used to be on Lantus when I was on MDI and uh, I always took it at 10 PM. I, I tried to, mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't always yeah. perfect with that, but uh, I shifted over to a pump recently and I noticed, you know, with the fine tuning that I need a lot in the morning, and towards the night, you know, six to 10 or midnight, I, it's next to nothing. Very, very little mm-hmm. required. And it's amazing to me how perfectly that Lantus matched it without me even knowing. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it, it. It's a nice coincidence when it works out that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the newer uh, insulins to uh, uh, Degladec in particular, it's Traceba is the brand name for yeah. it, has a much longer action curve and a much flatter action that was my next question to to geo to a certain extent as well it's a concentrated form of glargine that has slightly longer and flatter action with those insulins taking them once a day you have a much more consistent level of basal insulin in the body Mm -hmm. uh, than you do with ordinary glargine or with uh, detamir but in that case i think it boils down to what works best for you since we are all unique and Mm -hmm. for me that might be an issue if I need less insulin at night, but it's a perfect, you know, even line <laughs> that's being delivered. Yeah. Then I might go low before bed. Um, yeah. I find that the vast majority of people with type 1 diabetes and a growing number of type 2s who require insulin have a, a need for a peak in their basal and a valley at another time of day. And typically that peak occurs middle of the night, early morning. And the valley occurs around midday and into the afternoon. Mm. Granted, everyone's needs are unique, but that's the most common pattern that we see. And trying to match that with injected uh, long-acting basal insulin can be a struggle because you have to take a relatively high dose of that insulin to meet your nighttime needs. Mm -hmm. But then you're getting far too much during the day, and it can cause repeated hypoglycemia during the daytime. Right. That's that's why a, a pump offers such a unique advantage in that we can adjust the basal by time of day to meet each individual's needs. Absolutely. It's been incredible seeing how I can fine tune every little piece. And uh, I mean, for me personally, I had to take a step back. I found myself almost obsessing over it because it was so fun to have these perfect little transitions between my basals. And, uh, you know, I, I look back at when I was on shots, I was like, okay, one shot, I'm done. <laughs> it was such, there's <laughs> yeah. just so yeah. much little stress involved with MDI, but then you have to deal with the highs and the lows, right? Because you can't customize yeah. it. So it's kind of a, a pros right, and right. cons kind of conversation to have there. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the the, the temporary basal feature. Oh, man. Is that something that you've used on a pump? Currently using it right now. <laughs> cool. It's incredible. Well, what kind of situations do you use it for? Um, well, for me, basal testing, if I notice I'm going high at certain periods of the day, I'm going to start with a temp basal and 
do that mm-hmm. for about two or three days in a row, see if that tends to help my blood sugars. Um, but also for exercise. And if I'm going to go yeah. for a run, I got to make sure I have my tent basil on or I have a snack. Um, I also consider it. I mean, there's also the extended bolus, of course, but if I have a high fat or high protein meal, I can increase by a temp basil if I forgot to give that. Um, or I could also mm-hmm. give a second bolus. There's so many options with pumps. <laughs> it's, it's really yeah. incredible. Yeah. You know, on injections, once you give that shot, you're kind of stuck with it for 24 hours. You can't raise it. You can't lower it. You've got what you've got. Mm-hmm. The pump, uh, you know, since the pump is using rapid acting insulin, you can make an adjustment to the basal that will start affecting your glucose in the next hour or so. And you can shut it off when you need to as well. And there's so many practical uses for temporary basal adjustments. Anything that causes your body to become more or less sensitive to insulin or anything that causes the liver to start kicking out more or less glucose than Mm -hmm. usual can be managed with effectively with, with a temporary basal adjustment. Oh yeah. And I think a great example of that is, um, I don't drink very often, but the last time that I did, I noticed that I was going low a lot. And so mm-hmm. making sure that I set that temporary basal overnight to make sure I didn't go low in my sleep and you know, it works great. Yeah. I'm nodding right now. That's, that's <laughs> one of the better uses for it. You mentioned exercise. I find with prolonged exercise, temp basals are, are a godsend. Oh yeah. You know, you can cut your basal back dramatically, you know, 70, 80% an hour before the activity. And it really does wonders for keeping the blood sugar from dropping so fast. And sometimes people experience delayed onset hypoglycemia. I'm sure mm-hmm. you've seen that with the workouts. You Sugars that drop hours after the workout's yeah. over. And using a temp basal after the exercise, you know, a modest reduction can help prevent that. Oh, yeah. And you mentioned with food also, some foods will cause a prolonged rise in the blood sugar, high fat foods in particular. Mm-hmm. And I find that raising the basal in addition to bolusing is necessary to keep the glucose under control. Restaurant meals, for example, if you have a restaurant dinner and then you know, just bolus for it, your glucose might be fine at bedtime, but it'll climb all night long. Mm-hmm. So the extra basal insulin overnight can help with something like that. Absolutely. I've got a client right now that we're having that conversation is, uh, what did you have for dinner? And that's probably why you're seeing higher numbers while you're sleeping. You know, you go to bed with a good number, you wake up high. Well, we can Mm -hmm. can look at that and see what happened. That's right. A lot of people think, well, I'll just extend my bolus, but that doesn't give you more insulin. It just (laughs) spreads it out. You need more. And that's what the basal increase uh, will do. I found things like movie theater popcorn really work a number on me overnight and I have to raise my basil all night long after eating things like really? that. Really? That's interesting. Uh, now with the obvious difference between fast acting and long acting, with someone who's on MDI, and let's say that they have that peak in the morning, but a valley in the afternoon or nighttime, uh, giving too much long lasting is going to take care of the morning, but put them at risk of lows at night. What if they dialed back their long acting and gave a shot of fast acting either upon waking up or before they woke up like an hour or two beforehand. Well, that that's creative thinking and that's what it takes in some cases <laughs> to, to do the job. Uh, rather than uh, fast acting, uh, you can use regular insulin, you know, the old R insulin. Okay. If you know you, you have a peak, let's say between five and nine in the morning, you know, you could give yourself some, regular insulin early morning to to deal with that. Uh, Another option 
is a another insulin called NPH, mm. which it's a cloudy formulation. It's not a very predictable insulin, but it peaks about four to eight hours typically after it's injected. Somebody who knows they are going to have a dawn phenomenon and their sugar is going to rise in the early morning can take NPH at bedtime to deal with mm. that. So using a low dose of injected basal insulin to deal with the daytime and a little bit of NPH at night can work quite effectively. That's really interesting. I hadn't considered the uh, NPH before. Yeah. Most people kind of steer away. They call NPH not particularly helpful. <laughs> that's not really what it stands for. Oh, man. It, it, you know, historically, it's caused people a lot of problems because it doesn't always peak at consistent oh, times. Wow. and its duration isn't always predictable, but you know, it, it's an intermediate acting insulin. And sometimes when you need that early morning peak, it's the only way to accomplish it, giving it at bedtime. True. Yeah. I asked because, uh, I'm currently on a pump, as I mentioned, and I've got that, uh, about 5am to 7am my insulin doubles, you know, I have that setting set mm -hmm. and it takes care of it. I wake up perfect at like 96, you know, hundred somewhere in there. And uh, on MDI, that just wasn't the case. It was very difficult for me to have perfect morning numbers and then have good numbers the rest of the day. But um, mm -hmm. I've been considering, you know, taking the pump vacation kind of thing and thinking through, am I going to have to wake up at 5 a.m. <laughs> and take a shot mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, have to deal with that? And what is the best course mm -hmm. of action? So, um, yeah, just yeah. Think over. if you go to sleep late, you know, if you're up around midnight, uh, taking the NPH around midnight would would probably work if you need that peak in that 5 to 7 a.m. time frame. Yeah. But you would have to take a lower dose of uh, Glargine than your current basal settings. You know, look at your daytime basal rates and base your Glargine on that mm. rather than what you're taking in the early morning. That's another interesting topic is when switching from pump to MDI, the basal rates don't match up, do they? Not usually. Usually most people need about 10 to 20% more injected basal than they were getting with the pump. And is that strictly because it's fast acting versus long acting? Is there some difference there? The, the fast acting is a little bit more efficient. It's just less waste if you want to think of it that okay. way. Um, when you switch over to a long acting, it's just not as efficient. There's some loss of action uh, as it's working over that 24-hour period. So, yeah, most people require a little bit more of the injected than they, they would with the mm. pump. And I just thought of an interesting question that I've always had in my head as a theoretical situation because I haven't gone back to MDI since being on a pump. But since being on a pump, every time I take a hot shower, right, uh, it opens up my body. The insulin is going to circulate a lot faster. I drop really quick, especially if I've just given a bolus. Mm -hmm. And I have to be cautious with that. But I, I remember when I was on Lantus, that wasn't really a thing. So, you yes. know, is there a difference between Lantus and having to worry about all that insulin hitting you at once? Uh, do hot showers not do that when you're on MDI? Not usually because when, when you're injecting a long acting insulin, it absorbs into the bloodstream, you know, fairly rapidly, you know, within an hour or so, but it doesn't work all at mm -hmm. once. It's, it's like a time released capsule. Uh, it, it, it sort of in clusters and they do those clusters dissociate into single molecules, but they do it at a slow, steady pace. Mm -hmm. So whether you uh, are in a hot shower or cold, whatever it's, it shouldn't really affect the action of your long acting insulin. It'll definitely affect the fast acting. If you inject 
a rapid insulin and hit the sh- hit a hot shower, it's going to work a lot faster than if you didn't. But the long acting, you, you shouldn't see much of an right. effect. So if someone were to go on vacation to, I don't know, a hot springs tour <laughs> and they were worried about dropping mm-hmm. from all the fast acting on a pump, would it benefit them to switch over for a week to MDI? You know, I, I mean, they could try it. I find most people do pretty well staying on their pumps, even you know, in a situation like that. I, I've I've gone off the pump you know, a couple of times in my life. You know, once was just I was I was on a vacation at a place where it was just going to be a, a pain in the neck to have the pump on mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and once because I had a, a, a break, you know, pump break and I had to switch back temporarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people can do fine, even you know, under difficult environmental conditions wearing their pump they may have to change their insulin more frequently because it might you know it can spoil if it's exposed to you know continuous high temperatures so every day they may have to refill their their pump reservoir and reprime their tube Uh, but other than that it should be okay yeah and that was my other thought with uh you know if i'm going to go in a jacuzzi with a pump site connected then uh you know you disconnect your pump to go into the water or whatever but that little bit of tubing that's exposed has insulin in it. It's going to be mm-hmm. exposed to, you know, 90 degrees, 100 degrees. And I'm assuming that that insulin is going to go bad. Yeah, it probably would. You know, a, a pod users run, run into the same problem True. where oh, all of the wow, insulin yeah. can spoil if they wear it in a, in a hot tub, whirlpool, things like that. Uh, so, yeah, you really do need to start with fresh everything. Yes. You know, if somebody's using a pump uh, with an infu- a tube pump with an infusion set that disconnects right at the mm-hmm. site, it's less of a True. problem because you're not really cooking any insulin. There might be, you know, half a unit in the cannula, but that's that's nothing to worry about. Usually, you just reconnect after you're out of the hot water and you're good to go. True. So there's one uh, bonus for those. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I have one more question that I forget the terminology surrounding it, but there is a certain strategy where you split your basal between half pump and half MDI for those who are going to be disconnected for a long period of time, whether it's swimming or scuba diving or something like that. Uh, One question is, do you know what that's called? (laughs) And the second question is how to do that. (laughs) Yeah. It's called the untethered plan. Okay. Uh, Just because you're not have, you don't have to be physically connected to your pump for the better part of the day Mm -hmm. and setting it up. It depends on what a person's normal basal pattern looks like. If you have the usual pattern where your daytime settings are generally lower than your nighttime settings, it's, it's pretty easy to set up. You would take an injection of Glargine or Lantus just to uh, provide your daytime basal needs. And then you would program a secondary pattern in your pump to provide the extra that you need during the night. So I'll give you an example. You know, let's say your daytime basal is 0.3 and at nighttime it's 0.6. You would give enough glargine to provide about three-tenths of a unit throughout the day and night. And then at night, you would program a basal of 0.3 to compensate for the extra or to provide the extra that you need on top of the glargine dose. And you can do that any day. You can decide in the morning, do I want to be on my pump or do I want to be off? Mm-hmm. And you can just either take a shot at that point and switch to the other basal program, or you know you stay on your pump for the day. So you do that in a 24-hour cycle. You know, we, we can help people to set up those types of things if, uh, if they're interested, especially if their basal program's a bit more complex. You know, we right. can work them through the details. 
when I had first heard about it, it was someone who wanted to go snorkeling and spend hours upon hours in the water away from their pump. And their initial strategy, without consulting their medical team, <laughs> was to take half of their uh, basal dose in MDI and then set their pump to a temp rate of 50% for 24 hours. Is that kind yeah. of a, the easy way, but not necessarily the best way? Uh, probably not the best way because that presumes they're going to have their pump on most of the time still because of that basal reduction. Uh, okay. uh, it, it's if they want to be completely off their pump for extended periods of time, uh, it, it's better to do the, the injection uh, and then have a secondary pattern set up. Yeah, the danger of being completely off a pump and not having any long acting insulin in the body is you're body can become completely depleted of insulin. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, even for an hour or two, it, it can lead to extremely high blood sugars and ketone production. And if you're exercising on top of that, it, you can wind up in ketoacidosis fairly quickly. Right. So it's never a good idea to be completely off your pump, getting no insulin uh, for more than say an hour, hour and a half at a time. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a lot of variables to consider with this stuff, but uh, I think it's always important to know the safety guidelines first. That's very good to know for everybody to consider. Um, I mean, we've covered a lot on this. <laughs> I'm looking yeah. at my notes like, wow, we did a lot. Um, is there anything else? Actually, the, the final question I like to ask is for all of our listeners, what is one golden nugget that you would like to give them, whether it's diabetes related or mindset or anything really um, that you can give them that you think is one of the most valuable things you've heard? Or learned. Well, I, I think the three things that are most important to for managing diabetes, one, you got to have good tools. And whether it's the equipment, the insulin, whatever, you got to have good tools. Second, you need the right skills to use those tools because you know, if you don't know how to use them effectively, there's no point. And the third thing everyone needs is the right attitude. You know, if you got an attitude that you're going to tackle this and you're going to do your best, but don't get overwhelmed. You got to give you cut yourself some slack sometimes too. <laughs> so if you got the right, the tools, the skills, and the attitude, you got all three, you can accomplish great things. If you don't have all three, it's like having a stool that's missing a leg. It's just going to fall over. Hmm. That's excellent advice. Yeah. Get the, uh, the 360 approach. I like it. Mm -hmm. Well, Gary, it's been amazing having you on today. Where can our listeners find you? Uh, well, our website is uh, integrateddiabetes.com. There's a lot of information there. There's, we have all kinds of pump comparisons, CGM comparisons. There's logging apps. There's all kinds of stuff. There's even a bolus calculation tool and some other fun things. We even have a uh, Simpsons-themed quiz if somebody wants to test their diabetes knowledge on there. <laughs> uh, so if they go to the website, they'll, they'll learn about uh, what our practice does. They'll learn about our team. All of my clinicians here have type 1 diabetes, so we, we live it and breathe it day in and day out. And I think it lends to our, our credibility and our expertise and, and the compassion we've got for what we do. Absolutely. It's a whole new level of care when you are going through it yourself. You get all the little tiny things that you know the, the main doctors don't really quite get. Not the main doctors, yeah. the non-diabetic doctors. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear you loud and clear. Yeah, and yeah, we're, we're busy here, but we're always open to working with new clients and helping with whatever their goals happen to be. That's awesome. Well, everyone, you heard it. If you, gotta find, if you want to find Gary, he's at integrateddiabetes.com. They've got tons of great resources. 
Uh, we spoke with actually one of his staff members a little while back, and she was incredible on the podcast. Uh, so thank you again, Gary, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Hey, my pleasure, Matt. Anytime. And everyone listening, make sure you subscribe, check out our other episodes, and we will see you guys next time. Keep up the fight. All right, guys, I hope you found some valuable golden nuggets in that episode. Whether you're testing your own basal rates or at the very least using that information to have that conversation with your doctor from a more knowledgeable standpoint. Now, of course, the best way to document your blood sugars when basal testing is with the Trending Health Journal, a health journal for people living with diabetes, which, of course, is our sponsor for today's episode. You can find more information and grab your copy at TrendingHealthJournal.com. Until next time, keep up the fight.